For the next three weeks, counting today, we're going to have a, a, a kind of a mini-series where each sermon deals with the exalted Christ. And so this morning we'll look at actually the, the ascension of Christ and the exaltation that he has. And then next week we'll see what he does from his exalted place in the throne room of heaven. And then on the third week we're going to see some things about the exalted Christ in his return and how he defeats all those who oppose him. So I trust that you'll have a sense of anticipation as we look at three very important and uh, encouraging texts from the New Testament as they, uh, they, they help us see and think and become greater, greater in our faith regarding the exalted Christ. I think uh, there's nothing I enjoy more really than um, opening the Word of God with the people of God. And it delights me to know that we, we are the people of God, called out from the world, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, being transformed by the Spirit, and journeying together to that great day when the reign of Christ will fill the earth. It is good to be together as the people of God. Before we open his word, let's pray together, shall we? And so, our Father, we are delighted to be here, to be together as your people. And we acknowledge it is not because of our strength or our might or our ingenuity or our number. We have nothing to bring before you except open hands and say, Oh God, you have been so good to us. You, O oh God, are our God, our refuge, our strength. You are our rock. Indeed, in a world that is shifting and uncertain and, and like the sand on the shore seems to change position under our feet, you are steady and faithful and solid for us as we have sung to build our lives upon. And we thank you. Father, we come this morning from many countries. We come from all around Ethiopia. We come from different language groups and with different skin colors and different gifts. And yet we are indeed united as one people by your Spirit. We belong to you. And it is our delight to be called your children. Father, thank you that as we pray together, as we sing together, as we submit to the Word together, we have this great assurance that your Spirit is at work in our midst. And so even as you choose to work among us today, I ask that we would submit and that we would be filled with an anticipation of your work. Father, we pray for our city and for our country and ask this morning, especially as the Word of God goes out from churches around this city, that the name of the Lord Jesus will be lifted up, that men and women and boys and girls will respond in faith, and that the truth will ring clearly from, from your churches around this land. Father, we pray for those in governments over us and ask that you would give them wisdom. May they fear the Lord. May they guide us well under your great supervision. 
And Father, as we, as we come together as your people, we ask also that you would help us to care for one another deeply, that we might see our differences on the one hand, help us to see past differences, to see our unity in Christ, and therefore to care deeply for one another. Give us something the world does not have, a, a deep love for each other, and may it be evident in how we care for one another. So thank you, Lord. We ask your blessing upon us now as we open your word. We commit ourselves to you for Jesus' sake. Amen. For many years growing up in uh, America, I, I always had a great sense of confidence that I could turn on the water faucet and I could put a glass of water, a glass under there, get a glass of water, and I could drink it. No worries, no fears, no doubts. It was just the way we were brought up because there were some smart people somewhere making sure that the water was clean. And I grew up with a conviction that the water coming out of that faucet was clean, pure, healthy, good for me. And then early in the 1990s, we came to Ethiopia and everybody told me, don't drink the water. The medical people told me, don't drink the water. My friends told me, don't drink the water. Everybody said, don't drink the water. I said, okay, if you tell me, I won't drink the water. So for four years, I didn't drink any water out of a tap. We drank water, you know, that was filtered or boiled or bottled, but not from the faucet. A funny thing happened because four years later, I went back to visit America and I saw a faucet and someone gave me a glass and said, here, have a glass of water. Uh, I, I lost my confidence. Uh, I didn't know, is it, is it okay to put this glass under here? Is that all right? <laughs> it's really not fun, much fun to live with doubt. It's much better to live with confidence, right? But, but not just when it comes to water. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that we realize that when we have confidence, when we're sure, it makes life better. Um, I have had the privilege of being married to my wife for 42 years. You know what? I have pretty high confidence that she loves me. When I come home, she's going to be there. She's going to care for me. She stays with me. I'm confident of that. No doubt, no worries, no fears. Uh, some of you you come from a home where, where mom makes really good injerabawat. I mean, it's like really good. Tafachno. I tell them. And you have grown up in a home where when mom makes the what, it's always good. And so you have a really high confidence that when you go home at night, you're going to have a really good meal. No fears, no worries, no doubts. Right? It's great to live life with a sense of confidence, conviction. And if that's true in some of these smaller areas of life, how much more in our walk with Jesus? How much more in our spiritual lives would we want to have a confidence that the program of Jesus and our witness for Jesus is really based on something solid? that we have no doubts, no worries, no fears. But that's actually quite 
hard today, isn't it? It's difficult to go through life with that kind of confidence in Jesus' program and our witness for Him. We face pressure that can undermine our confidence. It destabilizes us. Uh, for example, it's, it happens when we want to live for Jesus in our neighborhoods. We want to have a good witness for Him, and yet, and yet right there in our neighborhood, we can face hostilities from our neighbors. We can be rejected when they find out that we really are followers of Jesus. It can happen in our workplace. You go to work and you say, you know, here in my office, I, I really want to have a testimony for Jesus. I want my commitment to Jesus to be known. But, but in such a situation, others may shun us. They may push us to the side. They may pass over us for promotion because you Jesus followers eh, don't know about you. And our confidence can be shaken. Our conviction can be hurt. Or perhaps it's the fact that we live in a country where, where it seems that really living for Jesus doesn't make much a difference. I mean, there's great civil unrest. We have war. We have economic challenges and difficulty. Prices keep going up. We, we, we live with a tension today that, that in many ways, we haven't seen for a long time. And it seems that Jesus, he just doesn't really do anything. And perhaps our confidence in his program and our witness for him is shaken. And to make matters worse, we haven't even seen him. I mean, Jesus is not here for us to see and so when we can't see him and we can't see much progress, our confidence is shaken. Where can we get the kind of conviction that will help our confidence in the program of Jesus and our witness for him? Where do we look to get the kind of conviction that will deepen our faiths, make us strong, make us steady, so that our confidence in His program and in our witness will be unshakable? Uh, we might say it even this way. What do we see in a Jesus we can't see? This morning, we want to answer that question, and we're going to define three convictions in a passage of Scripture that I think you will find really strengthen us and encourage us in our faith. They're, so, they're made so that we can go into our neighborhoods, in our workplace, and, and in our society and still have a great witness for the Lord Jesus. Three convictions that were valuable not only for us, but for people in the first century because they lived in a world where their faith was being tested. In the first century church, they had Rome, they had Jerusalem, uh, forces that pulled them away from a steady faith. And you know what? Just like us, those believers in the first century, they had not seen Jesus either. And perhaps they were wondering, what do we see in a Jesus we cannot see? So conviction number one, 
Here's what will help us. It is this simple statement that the resurrected Jesus is the real Jesus. The resurrected Jesus is the real human Jesus. And you're all looking at me like, well, yeah, of course. But hold on. Maybe that's not so obvious after all. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, verses 33 to 35. And we're going we're to interrupt a meeting that was going on with several of the disciples and followers of Jesus. And in this text, they're having a meeting and they're discussing this question. Is Jesus really human? Who is this guy who showed up? So, we're in Luke chapter 24. I trust you found it. Verse 33, we'll just read a few verses and then uh, talk about what is happening here. Luke 24, verse 33, it says, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. I'll stop there for just a second. Who's the they? We interrupted a story and we're interrupting a meeting, but you'll forgive me for that. They are the mystery men who are hiking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So the story begins where Jesus has been raised from the dead and a couple of men have been moving toward Emmaus about seven miles, 15 kilometers or so from Jerusalem. And you remember the story, on the way they had been talking about all that had happened, that Jesus had been uh, tried and convicted and put to death on a cross. And then, and then the, 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 the women had gone to the tomb and the body wasn't there. And then some angels came and said, he's not here, he's not risen. And they were just talking about this. And as they're walking on the road, Jesus starts walking with them. And of course, they don't recognize him for a while until he sits down and breaks bread and eats with them and, it's Jesus. Well, that kind of changed things. So Jesus left and they turned around and come back immediately toward Jerusalem. And that's where we break in on the story. They're having a meeting with the 11 disciples. So they're all gathered in a room and you cannot kind of imagine the conversation that they're having. Right? So here, what, is, what does uh, Luke say there in verse 34? He says, they're saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two that had happened on the way and uh, uh, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So you have two groups, the 11 disciples being joined by the two people, travelers on the Emmaus Road, and they're all talking it up, and the 11 say, look, it's true. We believe it, kind of, sort of, that, that Jesus came and he appeared to Simon. And then the two on the ele- that were coming from Emmaus say, how can that be? He, he appeared to us. How could he appear to you? And you can imagine the confusion. They want to believe, but they don't know exactly what to do about all of this. They kind of get it, but they kind of don't. You see, they, they don't have a category for a resurrected human being who shows up without using a door. They had watched Jesus be crucified on that cross. They had seen him bleed. They, they had seen his body go pale and cold. 
They, they had watched his limp body being taken off the cross and, and wrapped in a cloth and, and placed into a tomb where a stone was rolled over the top of it. He was there. He was dead. And now they're trying to figure out what have we seen with this man who came and talked to us. It sure seemed like Jesus. And as they are talking about this, Jesus appears again to encourage them, to help them understand. So Jesus is going to come and show them that he, the resurrected Jesus, is the real human Jesus. He does that in verses 36 to 42. Look what it says. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw, they saw, they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look, look, look at my hands and my feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus is showing them that he, the resurrected Jesus, is the real human Jesus. He is not a ghost. Now, sometimes we read this, we think it's kind of silly that the disciples would think this is a ghost. This is not silly. This, this is like, this doesn't happen. <laughs> and so Jesus points out, look, I have, I have flesh and bones and Ghosts do not have flesh and bones. I'm the real thing. I'm a real human being. I am really Jesus. You see, my friends, disciples, this is not fiction. It's not make-believe. It's not myth. It's not an imagination. It's not a hallucination from chewing too much chat. Jesus is the real human Jesus. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to be in that room? And maybe, maybe someone came and touched his hands and, and looked at his feet. Maybe they reached out to see, yeah, yeah, real flesh. And then they watched him eat fish. I bet no one ever was watched as closely as Jesus when he ate fish. Every eye was probably on him as he picked up a fish and ate it and swallowed it. And maybe, maybe he dropped the bones on the floor for them to have afterwards. He is the real human Jesus. But it's not just that he's really human. It's also that he was truly the Jesus whom they had known. He makes it really clear that, that this, is not a, uh, this is not a fake Jesus. He's not somebody else. You notice what he does? He says, look, it's me. I, myself. You know, the, the Jesus you know. The one that you have walked 
the paths of Galilee with, the, the one that you heard my teaching. I, I am the same one who healed the sick and, and, and raised the dead, and, and, and I'm the one that walked on the water. You remember? It's me. It's the Jesus they have known. I suspect that one of the reasons he showed him that his hands and his feet was because they would bear the very marks of the crucifixion. And they would know it's him. It's our Jesus, our master, our teacher, our king is here. the disciples would have become convinced that this Jesus was the real human Jesus. Of course, Luke writes this not to help the disciples. They've already experienced it. He writes it to help the first century believers, a group of people whose faith was being challenged because, like I said earlier, they did not get to see Jesus. They did not get to touch Jesus, but they found the eyewitness testimony of this group to be so convincing, and they believed it. My friends, may I suggest to you that like those first century believers who heard this text, we also must have a deep conviction that that resurrected Jesus is the real human Jesus. But it's difficult to believe that. If you hang out at the university or you're you're affected by people who are university uh, pursuing degrees, what you find is that for many of them, this whole resurrected Jesus thing, it's just a myth. It's fiction. No real intelligent person would believe such, such a deception. It's just people's imagination. It's okay if you want to believe it, but it's not really true. Our Jesus, our resurrected Jesus, is a real human Jesus. Conviction. Conviction is hard to measure. Have you noticed? How much conviction do you have? Oh, about three grams worth. What? I got 44 meters worth. You can't measure conviction very well. You can't go through a Geiger counter and have it, you know, measure the amount of conviction radioactivity that you have. We don't really know about conviction until it's tested. And that's when we find out if our conviction is really strong, right? So... In this day, there's at least a couple situations where we might find our conviction really tested. When Jesus seems to be dead to us, it's hard to hold a conviction that he is the resurrected, human, real Jesus. You know, it happens when we can't see him or we don't feel close to Him, and our prayers don't seem to be getting through, and life is not going well, and it seems that Jesus just isn't even alive, and perhaps our conviction takes a hit. 
But it's here that Luke encourages us that this Jesus is the real human Jesus, and our conviction can be deep. Sometimes it occurs when, when we ourselves experience death around us, and it is so prevalent. We live in a society where death always seems to be knocking at our door. It comes, it comes with the next cancer diagnosis. It comes, awareness comes with the next funeral we attend. Our faith is tested. A, a gunshot rings out. A war goes on. A, someone dies from COVID. There's this constant awareness that we are dying. And we begin to wonder is there really a Jesus resurrected from the dead? And our conviction takes a hit. And Luke tells us, no, no. He showed up with hands and feet and body, and he ate. And they saw him. And our conviction is deepened that the resurrected Jesus is a real, the real human Jesus. It's conviction number one. We want that conviction. There's a second conviction in this text that will also help to stabilize our faith when we're under pressure. And that conviction is this, that the resurrected Jesus is the center point of God's plan from beginning to end. Let me say it again. The resurrected Jesus is the center point of God's plan from beginning to end. To end. This is exactly what Jesus teaches his disciples in verses 44 through 49. He wants to make it very clear that it's all about him. Look with me at verse 44 and following. He said to them, This is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be filled that is written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He, he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Jesus is here assuring his disciples that he is the center point of God's program from beginning to end. In other words, when I talk about God's program, I'm suggesting that to you that the whole idea of from rejection to exaltation of Jesus to forgiveness proclaimed in the name of Jesus, that's all part of God's grand program from the very beginning. Verses 46 and 47, did you know it? notice what he says? He says, here's what was written, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. In other words, God has always had this plan. He began that plan way back in the Old Testament. And he, and, he, and he pulled Israel out of Egypt because his plan was set in motion that Israel would, would have suffering and be raised up from bondage and slavery and that Israel would proclaim forgiveness, but not yet in the name of Jesus. 
And of course, Israel would, would fail to do their, complete their mission, and eventually Jesus would come, and, and yet he, the great suffering servant, would, would be put to death and die and, and be raised again. And then all that so that a message could go out, a message of forgiveness could be complained, could be proclaimed, forgiveness for all who repent. Wow. Jesus says, look, it's all about me. In fact, Jesus says, I'm going to send my spirit to you to empower you not to get healthy, not to get wealthy, not to protect you, not to, not to make life good. I'm sending my spirit to empower you for witness so that in a world that is hostile, you will be bold and you will have wisdom and you'll point people to this Jesus. That's always been part of God's plan. And the center point of it all is Jesus. He is the one that it's all been about. Did you see what it says? Verse 44, this has all been written about me, that he is this Messiah. And, you know, Jesus kind of piles on the proof here. <laughs> he really works to get the, help the disciples understand. He, he, he points them to revelation of the Old Testament. And then he gives them illumination. And on top of it, he gives them observation. Uh, think with me for just a minute. He says, look, all the prophets and the Psalms and the, the law of Moses, it's all been pointing toward me. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, you'll find my name on every chapter in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Psalms. It, it doesn't mean that David knew all about him or Moses knew all about him. They didn't. That had not all been revealed. In fact, through most of the Old Testament, there's a great mystery of exactly what God is going to do to deliver his people. But Jesus says, now that you understand, it's all pointing to me. The patterns, the patterns of how God works with his people, suffering and resurrection, it's all pointing toward me. That kings are going to come and it's pointing toward me. And, and he begins to help the disciples understand the scriptures. It's all about him. He gave them, he pointed to revelation. And then it says that he gave them illumination. He opened their mind. Did you see it? And don't miss this because the study in Revelation is certainly important for the disciples. They knew their Old Testament, I think. But something happened here because they had already been told that Jesus would suffer and die. You remember back in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 9, I think it is, where Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he has his disciples with him, and what does he say to them? The Son of Man, I am going to suffer and die and rise again. And Luke writes, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. A little later, chapter 18, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to die, and I'll rise again. And the text in Luke chapter 18 says, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. 
Are the disciples stupid? No. No, it just didn't make sense. And now Jesus comes to them in this little room, and he opens their minds. And they understand in a way they've never understood before. He gives them revelation. He gives them illumination. He gives them observation. See? See me? You are witnesses. You've seen it. It's all so very true. And the result for the disciples is this. They gain a deep, deep conviction that this Jesus standing in front of them, he is the centerpiece of God's program from beginning to end. Reminds me a little bit of a, you know, when sometimes you go out on the streets of Addis Ababa and you notice how all the traffic stops, not just because somebody's car broke down, but because the prime minister is coming across town in his motorcade. You ever have that happen? You know, the, the traffic stops, and of course, first you have some policemen. And the policemen come on their motorcycles, and they stop all the traffic. And then you have other policemen who come, and, and, and they are armed guards, perhaps, security forces to make sure that everything is safe and secure. And then, then you'll have um, some other special cars with, with dignitaries, maybe people high up in the government and diplomats. But then comes the main car. The main car is the car with the prime minister in it. And all those other vehicles and motorcycles, they're just kind of secondary. The real central feature is that car with the prime minister. Jesus is saying to his disciples in God's motorcade through history, he is in the premier car. He's in the central car. He is the one, he is the one that everyone must see and look at. The centerpiece of God's program. We've been searching for convictions that will help our faith stand strong, faith in God's program and in our witness. And so far we've seen a couple of those. Um, th those uh, before I go there, let me, let me suggest something else. Um, it is hard today still to have this conviction in God's program. This conviction that Jesus really is the center of it all. It, it's hard not to think, well, Jesus is just a plan B. Jesus is God's second thought, maybe. Uh, we are told that when we send missionaries out to other cultures, that what's happening is we are really being like imperialists. We are running over other cultures. We are doing violence to others by proclaiming this message about Jesus. And if you hear that message long enough, it begins to raise doubts in our minds that maybe the program of God isn't really what we thought. But we have this conviction that Jesus is the centerpiece of God's program from beginning to end. Or it may be that 
We're here in Arisaba and the, the sounds from the, the mosque grow louder and louder and the, the suspicions from non-believers grow more frequent upon us and, and perhaps even at times the laws of the government may be created to make life as Christians more difficult and the effect of all of these forces makes our convictions fatigued. And we begin to wonder if the program of God and our witness for Jesus is really going anywhere. But we have this conviction, that the resurrected Jesus is the centerpiece of God's program from beginning to end. It may be that you are, like many of my friends, you like to use social media perhaps to be a voice for the gospel. Perhaps you use Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or Instagram or some other medium to, to, to proclaim Jesus. And what a wonderful thing that can be. But my friends all around the world, forces are at work to shut down your voice. And when that happens, and I have friends who have been banned from social media, it can be so discouraging. And we begin perhaps to wonder if the program of God through Jesus is really going to go forward. But we have this conviction that Jesus, he's the centerpiece of God's program from beginning to end. So we have these great convictions. He, Jesus is the real human Jesus. He is the centerpiece of God's program. And there's one more conviction that we want to examine here this morning in this text. Just, it's so encouraging you got to hold on. The resurrected Jesus is the exalted Lord worthy of our worship. The resurrected Jesus is the exalted Jesus, the exalted Lord worthy of our worship. Look what he says in the last few verses of Luke's gospel. Verse 50, and when he, Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them, and he was taken up into heaven, and then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. This whole scene is to help us understand that the resurrected Jesus is the exalted Lord worthy of our worship. Notice what's, how Luke writes about it. It says he was, he was taken up into heaven. He didn't fly. He didn't get catapulted. He didn't vaporize, right? It's as if the very hand of God took him. It's as if God is saying, I approve of him, this Jesus, as my son and my king, the king and of course, Scripture tells us, as Jesus predicted, that he would take a place exalted, seated at the right hand of his Father, the place of highest exaltation and authority. He was taken up to heaven. And then, so the resurrection from the grave leads to the ascension into heaven, which leads to exaltation to the throne. And how did they respond? They worshipped him. Did you see it? Verse 52. Now, this is striking on several levels. First of all, if, if Jesus leaves them, why would they worship? 
don't leave us. <laughs> no, they've become convicted of something greater. That this is the exalted Lord. In fact, in all of Luke's gospel, this is the first time and the only time that it says that Jesus is worshipped. His disciples will honor him, they will obey him, they will listen to him, they will run to him, they will follow him, they'll sleep on stones with him, but this is the first time they worship him. Why? He's exalted as Lord to the highest place. And they have this new stirring conviction, a conviction so great that they will go back to the temple and bless God by proclaiming Jesus. Now, think about this. If you're one of the disciples, where is the last place you want to go? Back to the temple. Why? That's where they put Jesus on trial. That's where they killed him. That's where they said insurrectionist and blasphemer. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in line for the exact same kind of treatment. But the disciples are convinced he's Lord. And they go back, blessing God by proclaiming Jesus. Wow. That's a conviction. He's our exalted Lord, worthy of our worship. We've already sung that today. We sang a song that he's king of kings. We sang a song that says he sits upon the throne above, exalted, but but you know, this is so much more than just singing songs, isn't it? We live in a world where so many try to reign supreme. Today, there are armies marching from various countries to take over military supremacy. Other countries are trying to determine how can they have economic supremacy or domination. Yet others look for a cultural domination. There's a, there's a desire to kind of rule the world. There are pockets of very wealthy people who are trying to control even the most, the largest and most important governments in the world. Why? Because people are going to use technology and money and military and everything they can to reign supreme. And we as believers in Jesus know, wait, there is one supreme. He is the risen Lord, exalted as Lord and worthy of our worship. And so, my friends, and we walk through a world where everyone else seems to want to reign supreme and our conviction seems to be under attack, we have this great assurance. He's alive, exalted, reigns supreme, worthy of our worship. This is all so encouraging, isn't it? I mean, you're all sitting there very quiet, not a single amen. <laughs> I, uh, I found a, 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 little, a really nice little observation, last thing I'll say about this text, from a, a scholar in the book of Luke. And he made this comment, and, and when he talked about this passage, he said, the resurrected Jesus does not appear in proof to Herod, or to Pilate, or to Jewish leaders. No. 
but to the disciples whom he gathered for his earthly ministry. Jesus assures us that he's the real human Jesus, the centerpiece of God's program from beginning to end, and the exalted Lord worthy of our worship. And so we say to him, Lord, we believe. Help us believe even more. This week, as you go, maybe, maybe you could remember three pictures. Uh, a, a picture, first of all, of, of Jesus eating fish. <laughs> maybe you can envision fish bones on the floor of a room. Jesus is really human. Uh, remember the picture of a motorcade where the central feature is the Lord Jesus. And perhaps remember the picture of one ascending in the clouds, blessing his disciples, exalted Lord. May our convictions be deep about him. We're going to respond in worship, which seems most fitting, right? The Lord's Supper is ours to celebrate today. I'm going to pray for us and then ask Mike to come and lead us, Pastor Mike to come and lead us as we worship the Lord for what he has done for his people. So, Father, thank you that we could enjoy this text together. I pray that you will strengthen our faith and now accept our worship as we celebrate the Lord's table together. For Jesus' sake, amen.